Civil War Time Machine with author Patrick Brennan when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Have you let your website go stale? Wish you didn't have to wait for your web developer to return your call when you want to update content? You don't have to. Now you can easily and instantly manage your own website content using affordable Avalar technology. Avalar is a website development and hosting company that provides turnkey Internet solutions for companies like yours that need to stay focused on core business. Avalar gives you the power to control your website and make updates and additions in real time without having to learn HTML or other complicated programming tools. Websites powered by Avalar feature capabilities that attract more customers and enhance relationships with existing customers. Avalar offers a multitude of leading-edge solutions, including lead generation and referral tracking, shopping carts and payment processing, membership management, and search engine optimization, to name a few. Take advantage of the full power of the Internet using Avalar technology at www.avalar.com. That's A-V-A-L-A-R.com. Vitality is a natural expression of health, success, and fulfillment. And yet it's rare to meet people bubbling with vitality. That's because most of us push ourselves too hard. And when we trigger the internal alarms that tell us to change our diets, attitudes, or activities, we ignore them. Allowing outside pressures to override our internal alarms undermines our health, sabotages our success, and limits our potential. If you're ready to reclaim your natural vitality, to begin living a life you love, visit thevitalyou.com. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. To reach a show host or guest during the live show, dial toll-free in North America, 866-613-1612. Or, if outside the USA and Canada, dial 001-858-268-3068. Today, talking with Patrick Brennan, author of Secessionville, Assault on Charleston. In our last segment, we heard about the course of this uh, unusual battle in the summer, June of 1862, when Union forces tried to approach Charleston by crossing uh, the barrier islands that lie just south and west of the city and uh, try to approach the, the harbor from the land side where they encounter Confederate forts, uh, among other things, defending the neck, narrow neck of a peninsula, which the Union forces, needless to say, could not uh, could not easily breach, and it wouldn't do them much good if they did, because they'd just be deeper into a peninsula. Uh, so, Patrick, the, uh, the attack ultimately does not succeed in taking Charleston, I gather. No. What, uh, what, what, take us through the end, uh, the aftermath of this battle. Well, Hunter hears about it, and he immediately, he calls Benham down, and Benham tries to explain to him that, uh, he was just trying to protect his camps, and, and Hunter relieved him on the spot and sent him back to Washington, D.C., where he spent the next half a year trying to convince everyone that uh, what he did was right and that uh, uh, he, he started claiming that Isaac Stevens was uh, something of a coward and uh, he, he blamed everyone except himself. There, there's an irony there. Now, Benham launches this attack, as you point out, without real authorization, just 
secure the camp. Well, right. I have to crush the enemy uh, preemptively in order to secure the camp. So he goes mm-hmm. forth. But Hunter uh, himself is about to uh, get in big trouble for exceeding authority. Uh, it, I'm not sure what month it was, uh, or maybe it, had, no, it hadn't already happened, when he uh, attempted to free the slaves in his district. Right, right. Uh, well, there were so many, uh, so many of the plantation owners who were growing uh, uh, that, that Sea Island cotton, mm-hmm. which was, you know, had, had made them incredibly wealthy because it was a, it was a larger uh, form of cotton. And it didn't need as much. Uh, it didn't need as much care. Right. It didn't have the seeds in it that the right. short staple cotton had. Right. So and have- um, when all these uh, uh, plantation owners left, there were just literally thousands of slaves just kind of milling about when the when the army first went into Buford in December of '61. It was it was just crowded with slaves who really you know had no idea what was going on or. They knew that you know the Yankees had come and that they were kind of free. So, one of the things uh, Hunter, who, who had been out in Kansas, he'd been out in West, and he was uh, could be considered an abolitionist. Uh, he said, "Well, you're all free, and uh, maybe we'll put uniforms on you." And uh, it was, uh, of course, something Lincoln wasn't quite prepared to do yet, and he had to override him. But I, I think Hunter was more of a political general than he was an actual general, anyway. So it was, it's not surprising that he did that. No, it, it's not. There's a great letter in the Lincoln uh, collected works of Abraham Lincoln, his, his letter to Hunter when Hunter was out west early in the war. And Hunter's whining about only getting uh, regimental command instead of being given an army like Fremont, and, and Lincoln just uh, rips him a new one. Uh, which is not Lincoln's style traditionally, but he wrote a very sharply worded letter to Hunter. Well, you know, um, Benham actually went to Lincoln and appealed his case to Lincoln, and then the next day Lincoln found out that in the course of Benham's appeal, Benham lied to him. Mm. And and Lincoln called him back in and just tore him apart. He was very angry with him. And if it was up to him, you know, he would have busted him on the spot. Um, Interestingly enough... He's never given line command again, but he is, he does become uh, commander of the engineering corps of the Army of the Potomac. And there's a great story about uh, he he did lay down that pontoon the pontoon bridge uh, just before Petersburg, the the mile and a half pontoon bridge. And they were crossing it. Grant when Grant was crossing it, Hunter uh, not Hunter Benham's the officer who's yelling. There's a story that Grant tells about crossing and that a boat was getting too close to it and that Benham let loose with a string of profanities that he, you know, Grant had a hard time remembering he had ever heard before. <laughs> and there's a, uh, during the Chancellorsville campaign, there's a drunk Benham has a run-in with, um, I believe, John Sedgwick, either Sedgwick or Reynolds, where he was, uh, he fell off his horse and landed on his face and was talking about the good old days in Mexico and cut his forehead and had blood all over himself, but didn't even realize it because he was so drunk. So it might, it, it might actually be, you know, in the Civil War, the, the typical thing was he wanted to uh, 
besmirched somebody, you'd say they were a drunk, but in Benham's case, it may very well be true. Interesting. So um, eventually, uh, Stevens, Isaac Stevens was like, you know, I want to get out of here. There's no, there's no good that can come of here. And he got transferred north just before uh, Second Bull Run, and he fought at Second Bull Run. And then when Reno got sick, he took over the Ninth Corps and was in command of the Ninth Corps at Chantilly. But he had he had started the war as Colonel of the uh, 79th New York, where he'd actually taken Cameron's place after Cameron was killed at First Bull Run. Right. And he um, and they loved him. He loved them, and they were right up in the front. And when they kind of faltered under the first uh, fusillade from uh, Jackson's people in the in that wood line, um, he came up and grabbed the 79th flag and said, follow me, boys. There was a corps commander right at the front. And uh, he, he took a bullet in the temple that killed him right away. But the, semi, the Highlanders rallied and attacked the, uh, uh, the wood line and drove Jackson's people back. But that's how that's Stevens had very, not much time to live after Secessionville. Horatio Wright went on to command, I think, was at the... He was a corps commander in the Shenandoah in '64. He had, he had. I mean, there was a lot of people at Secessionville who had, you know, very interesting uh, uh, Civil War history after the battle. Well, a question I, I often ask people is, if you could go back uh, on a time machine for one hour and know that you were coming back, just one hour to visit the Civil War era. Who would you like to talk to? Ooh. I know what I'd like to see. What's that? I'd like to see that party that was going on at Spring Hill. Oh, the uh, in, in Tennessee? Yeah. The, the uh, With Hood? When, uh, yeah, when where all his officers were like, while the well, uh, Union Army was marching past. Yeah. At the night, there was some kind of big party going on. And, you know, it's funny. Eventually, George Jones and Tammy Wynette lived in that house. Really, and I remember somebody saying, you know, being asked that same question. Said, well, that might be the only house that I, w- I would rather visit in 1964 than 1864, just to see wow. George and Tammy going at it, <laughs> see see them fighting him, blowing the windows <laughs> out with their shotgun. But I, to talk to, boy, that's a hard one. I, there's so many people you'd love to talk to. There are. I was just thinking when you mentioned, uh, of course, Hood's staff party while the Yankees march by brings to mind uh, the, the Shad Bake in, uh, mm-hmm. uh, at Five Forks. Think it's Shad Bake. Uh, so you can make a whole you know, greatest hits of Confederate uh, celebrations, premature celebrations. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I would, I'd certainly like to talk to Stevens. He seemed like a very interesting guy. He had a very colorful pre-war career. He was the governor of the, uh, of the Washington Territory. And he's well known out there as like one of the first great kind of paternal white men who dealt with the Indians out there, the Native Americans. And he, he doesn't have that good of a reputation out west. And I remember talking to uh, Kent Richards, who wrote a biography of him. We didn't really know that much about his Civil War history. It just, you know, had you know just cursorily gone over it. And I said, you know, he was he was actually. 
there's two sources that say that Lincoln was going to give him command of the Army of the Potomac after Second Bull Run, hmm. uh, that he felt that highly about him, and that, and that he had a lot of uh, power in Washington because he had been with the uh, Coastal Survey and he'd spent a lot of time in Washington before the war, and then he had built up a lot of... Uh, a lot of Washington contacts, being a governor, and he was um, also um, was a Democrat, but he was a hard war Democrat, and uh, he he fit exactly what Lincoln was looking for after uh, Second Bull Run, and I recall finding two sources where they were actually discussing it. One of the sources said that Lincoln and his cabinet were discussing Stevens at the time that word came of his death. So that would be September first or second. Interesting. So he, he, he I wrote an article for North and South, the commander who never was, and it started with a little fantasy about uh, Lee going to surrender to Stevens uh, at Antietam, uh, because Stevens, no doubt, would have. Stevens was a hard fighter. He knew how to put all his men in. He knew how to command artillery on the field. Uh, he knew the benefit of cavalry. He would have, I believe, he would have fought Antietam much differently, and uh, he would have also had, supposedly, had Kearney there too. So, <laughs> I mean, that the loss of Kearney and Stevens before uh, Antietam was massive. That's something, you know. I, 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 well, those are two figures people don't don't think that much about. I mean, don't know that much about. I think that's a very interesting uh, uh, comparison. Right. I think I think they could have, they would have definitely made a difference at that battle. Well, and and the same. Uh, this maybe answers a, a similar question or related question about who who was the best. Uh, uh, you know, we get any sort of fruitless you know, Lee or Grant uh, or Sherman or Jackson debates, uh, but who was the best unsung leader of the war? And uh, boy, that's a good one. Make a strong case right here. For you got another hour? <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't. Uh, uh, yeah, the- I, I, I like Stevens a lot. I, I researched him a lot, and I ended up liking him a lot. His, and, uh, and you, you say, you've, and you've written about him for North and South. I did write an, uh, uh, you know, maybe fourteen thousand word biography. Kent Richards wrote a much more extensive biography, which emphasized much more his uh, his uh, his pre-war activity than his war activity. Because he really did, uh, he was very influential on the development of the Washington and Oregon territories. He was, a, he was, he was, a, he was a, a prime instigator up there. Uh, well, the, the music is, is coming up too soon once again, yeah. uh, but I will tell all our listeners to find out more about, uh, to read in detail about this, this very interesting. Uh, battle told in in uh, very clear descriptive terms. Uh, Secessionville assault on Charleston is the title of the book, and the author is Patrick Brennan. And to find out more about some of the, the these figures, particularly uh, Stevens and others who were there, uh, uh, you've got the article in North and South and other articles. I know I've seen your name periodically. Are you working on anything right now? I'm actually working on a novel, Civil War novel. I haven't. Uh, I finished uh, Franklin in Nashville for North and South about a year ago. And 
I decided to try my hand at a novel. Well, that, that's something hopefully we can look forward to seeing pretty soon. Yeah. Well, listen, Maybe. thank you so much for, for taking time to be with us today on Civil War Talk Radio. It's my pleasure, Jerry. Thank you for asking me. And listeners, thank you all for listening. This is Jerry Prokopovich on Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs>